Amen. And now if you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of Colossians, chapter 2 specifically. We'll be looking this evening briefly at Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. continue to work our way through Paul's letter to the Colossians and <clears throat> now he is after having just discussed baptism and what it means to be united with Christ he now moves on to speak of what Jesus Christ has done for his people and so let's look now at chapter 2 verses 13 through 15 This is the very Word of God. The Word of God deserves our attention because it is eternal, because it is completely without error, because it is sufficient, because it is authoritative. Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 13. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would teach us from your Word. Teach us more of the Lord Jesus. Equip us, O Lord, for the life that you have prepared for us by following after Jesus and seeking Him and His grace. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. It is good to always be reminded of the basic fundamental truths. It is helpful to us as we face situations and challenges and difficulties to go back to the solid rock of the foundation of what it means to be a Christian. And that's what Paul is getting at here this evening. In this passage, in these three verses... Paul is describing what Jesus Christ has done for his people. What he has brought them from and what he has brought them to. How Jesus Christ is indeed a conquering king. This is the picture of Jesus that does not get much airtime in our society. If people speak about Jesus Christ, it is usually how cute a baby he was in the manger or how patient and calm a person he was when he taught. But you see, Jesus is more than that. He is the God of the universe. He is the almighty king over his church and the world. And because of this, we can have hope because Jesus is a conquering king. He conquers all of his and our enemies, the catechism says. And here we see Jesus conquering three sorts of things. The first thing we see is that Jesus is the one who is conquering death itself. He conquers death. And then the second thing we see 
in verse 14 is that he conquers sin. Jesus is the one who conquers death. And he conquers sin. And the third and final thing we see in verse 15 is that Jesus is the one who is conquering his enemies. Jesus conquers death. He conquers sin. And he conquers the enemies. So let's begin then by looking at verse 13, which is sort of classic Pauline language. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with you. Paul begins, as he so often does, with describing who we were. Those of us that are in the Lord Jesus Christ, who we were in the past And that is that we were hopelessly dead. Paul reminds us that the problem is, is that we were dead. And this is something that affected all of us. It is something in the past, we were in this way, but it is a serious problem. And if we understand this, it helps us to understand the purpose of Jesus Christ and his work. You see, if we are dead, there is only one solution to being dead. It's being made alive. And in that context, it doesn't really help a dead man to have religion. It doesn't help a dead man to have philosophy. Morality certainly is not good for a dead man. A dead man doesn't speak out of turn and interrupt other people. He doesn't take things from other people because he's dead. We don't say he has good morals. We look and we say he has another problem. And that is the problem of all mankind outside of Christ. So that question, I think, comes to us this evening. Do we understand the seriousness of the problem of everyone who is outside of the Lord Jesus Christ? Beginning with ourselves, do we understand exactly what we faced and exactly what it took to transform us? That we had to be shaped and taken from to life. As we look at our neighbors, do we understand that those who are outside of Christ, that what they need is life? They don't need more knowledge, per se. They don't need more kindness, per se. The place where we must begin is with life. And you see, we are hopelessly dead in our sins before Christ because of two things that Paul describes. The first is our actual transgressions, and the second are the sinful impulses that grip our life. You see, Paul says we were dead in our trespasses. Now, what that means is our deadness is actually complete. This language is very reminiscent of the language that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 2, where he says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. We have to understand that we really have fallen short of God's standards and his law. That we really have offended and affronted a holy God. That we are not as good as we think we are. You see, it is very common for those of us who are not in the Lord Jesus Christ to think that all we need to do is be a bit better than the competition. Somehow as if God grades on a very generous bell curve. 
And then as long as we get just over the hump, we'll be okay. As long as we can look back and see many more worse people than us, we're just fine. But Paul says that's not the case. When was the last time you said, oh, he's in much worse shape than this other dead guy. He's much more dead than the guy who's dead. It doesn't even make any sense, does it? We don't grade on a curve with that. Either you are alive or you are dead. And once you cross over to death, there is a great gulf fixed. And you see, we need to understand that we have fallen short of what the Lord has laid down in His Word. And when we fall short and we commit these actual transgressions, they are of several sorts. And as we, the more we think about them, the more we understand the depth of our sin. Sin is, of course, first and primarily doing things that are contrary to the Word of God. It is taking things that don't belong to you. It is taking the Lord's name in vain. It is being dishonest. It is treating others badly. But it is more than that. Even if we could somehow arrange our lives to avoid committing sins, if we could live so carefully to just sit in a chair, I guess, forever, and never confront any other person, and never say anything, and never interact with others to avoid sin, we would still be sinning. Because you see, it is not just what we do that condemns us. It is all the things that we fail to do. Because you see, as we think about the broadness of God's law in the Ten Commandments, where God tells us that we are not to steal, it means so much more than that. It means that we are not to steal and we must be generous. We are not to lie. And therefore, we are obligated to tell the truth. We are not to take the Lord's name in vain, and we are obligated to honor Him in all His attributes and actions. And you see, sin grips us both in the things that we do that we ought not, and the things that we fail to do that we ought. But you see, God's Word probes even deeper into our hearts, because it is not just merely what we do in our actions that condemn us. It is also our very words that condemn us. The things that we say are sinful. And even if we could keep our mouths shut all the day long, it is the things that we think that condemn us. For you see, sin grips us in deed, word, and thought. And Paul says there is another aspect to this problem of sin, though, that condemns us in our death. It is not just the actual transgressions, the actual sins we commit. It is also the sinful impulses that grip our hearts. Outside of Jesus Christ, we not only do evil, we desire evil all the time. We look for opportunities to do evil. We look for opportunities to take advantage of others, to make ourselves greater than we ought to be. It is this that grips our life. And there is only one release, only one solution for all of this misery and death. It's to be made alive by God. You see, we are changed in every aspect by the work of the Lord. 
Once we were dead in sin, but now God has acted. And He has made us alive. He has solved the problem by giving life to us. But look at how Paul describes this life. It's not just merely existence. It is life together with Him. God graciously calls us to Himself. He breathes life into us. And then He brings us to Himself for companionship, for encouragement, for comfort, for guidance, and for rule. And the only way that this can be possible, Paul says, is by having those trespasses, those transgressions, those sins forgiven. And Paul does something very interesting here. I don't know if you noticed it at first glance. He begins verse 13 talking about your, trans, your trespasses and you were dead. But then he ends verse 13 by talking about the forgiveness that has been given to our trespasses. You see, Paul knows the power of forgiveness. Paul is not just the preacher preaching at someone. He knows that work of God that has translated him from death to life. He knows exactly how important it is and how crucial it is and how vital it is to his life. And he knows that we can only find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. But in Jesus Christ, we find forgiveness for all of our sins. Do you lie awake at night or do you worry during the day that God has forgiven only most of your sins? That there are certain sins that are just too bad for God to ever forgive. And perhaps you hope against hope and you say to yourself, there's no way that God can forgive me, but maybe I'll, I'll just hope on a prayer that maybe when I come into His presence, He'll forget about them or He'll overlook them or someone else will have something worse. What Paul says is, you should be secure in the knowledge that if you have professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, every single one of your sins are forgiven. Think about that. Do you know many people in your life that would forgive you anything? Really anything. My imagining is that for most of us, Those people could be counted on one hand, maybe less, that would forgive us possible of sins. How great is God that He does not grade us on that curve, but that rather He forgives all our sins. Jesus is the one who conquers death, but He is also the one who conquers sin itself. We see this in verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You see, the first thing that we see here in verse 14 is that we have a debt. It is an unpayable debt. Why do we need forgiveness from God? Why can't we just go on? Have you ever had one of those kind of heated discussions, sometimes we call them arguments with someone else, and you disagree and you say something in the heat of the moment, one to another, 
but you're still so bound up in, in the moment and in the heat that you really can't come to a point of forgiveness and peace. And instead, you just decide to forget it ever happened, to push it behind you. Let's not think about that anymore. Let's just focus on the future. That sounds good, doesn't it? Except for the past is still there. And you see, that is the case with our sin. Even if God gave us a fresh start, there would still be a debt of sin that we have and could never pay. Can we simply ignore it? We may be able to for a time. But eventually that catches up to us. One of my favorite illustrations for this is the check engine light. Have you ever driven in a car and your check engine light comes on and you look at it and you think, I don't know, I think it's okay. I'll just not pay attention to it. And maybe the glorious thing happens that the light goes off for a bit. And then it comes back on and then you say, well, maybe it's not that the engine's broke, maybe the check engine light is broke. And I can just ignore it. And then it becomes harder to ignore, especially at night with its bright redness. And so what we do, perhaps, is we get some cardboard or a piece of paper and we tape it over the top of it. If I don't pay attention to it, nothing will happen. And then there starts to be a rattle in the engine. And now we can not only see, we can hear and we wonder, okay, what can I do about this? Aha! I have a solution. Turn the radio louder. And we ignore it again. Now that's funny when we think about a car and you all immediately know how foolish that is. That eventually, a serious problem is going to face us. And yet, oftentimes, that's how we live our life. We want to ignore the past of our sin. We want not to deal with it because somehow we think we will be better off if we just try and push down and suppress all of the sin that we have committed in our life. When what God says is we must bring it to Him and get it out in the open that He might forgive us and that it might be gone forever. You see, we have a record of debt, Paul says. And this is a very vivid image. It's like, for those of you that have ever bought a house, it's like the promissory note that you sign. It's not just about how much you owe, it's the fact that you have promised to repay it. You know, in the housing crisis, I think some people have forgotten about this principle of a debt that must be paid. People got behind on their homes and they figured they couldn't pay their mortgages and their house wasn't worth what the mortgage was, so they'll just walk away from the house. The bank can have the house. There's a problem with that, though, isn't there? If you owe more money on the house than the house is worth, guess what? The bank comes after you for the rest of the money because you still owe it. It is a debt that must be paid. And that's what Paul is talking about here. It's like a giant IOU that is pasted on our life and we must pay. You cannot get rid of it. It's like student loan debt. Have you ever noticed that? Those of you that are getting ready to go to school, when you sign that paperwork for a student loan, you know if you sign for a credit card and you can't pay it, you can go into bankruptcy and it's wiped away. If you 
sign mortgages or other personal loans. You can go into bankruptcy and it goes away. But student loans never go away. You can declare bankruptcy as many times as you like and they remain there and you must pay them. They are never discharged. And you see, that is what the debt that we owe to God is like. No matter what we do, no matter what we say, we cannot wipe that record off. It remains a debt, an IOU that we owe the Lord. And that debt becomes a source of condemnation for us that we cannot escape. It is evidence that condemns us. So what is the solution then? The solution is for Jesus to conquer sin. For the debt to be paid in full by King Jesus. And he does this in two ways that Paul describes here in our text. The first thing he does is he cancels it. He cancels the record of debt. And this is one occasion where the English word just does not do justice to the original Greek word. It's a fine translation. But the idea here is not just that it is canceled by a check mark. It is that it is obliterated. It is completely wiped clean. You don't even know that it was there. There is no residue. All of the legal demands have been met. And this is why Paul can say in Romans 8 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The debt is paid in full. The debt is also set aside, you see here. It has been nailed to the cross. And this takes upon it the criminal aspect of our sin. Not only do we owe God a debt, we are justly condemned for our actions. We ought to be punished. But you see, that punishment has been set aside. In older times, when someone committed a crime, while they were in jail, or especially if they were executed for it, there was a placard, a large piece of writing that was put at the place of their execution. You may remember this from old Western movies. A man is hanging and underneath him it says, I'm a cattle rustler. And you see, that is what our lives are like as well. We have sin that is a placard condemning us for lying, for stealing, for being unchaste, for being blasphemous. But you see, what God does is He takes that placard and He sets it aside. And He places it on the cross where Jesus Christ bears the punishment for our guilt. He pays the penalty that we earn. What a glorious gospel story. That God forgives us our sins. That He cancels our debt. And that He sets aside the conviction that we deserve. But thirdly and finally, the gospel story does not end there. It does not end with us. Because you see, Jesus, in addition to conquering death and conquering sin, He also, we see here in verse 15, He conquers enemies. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. And He put them to open shame by triumphing over them. 
You see, what Paul is describing for us here is something that is not very popular in the 21st century. And that is that there is evil, and it has power, and it is real. There is a great myth in the land today. It is the myth of neutrality. That somehow we can live our lives not for the Lord, but not for the devil either. We simply walk through neutral, like Switzerland. And you see, Paul says there's no such thing. There are powers that are wicked in our midst. When you watch the news and you see stories that make your heart break, that is not just circumstances. That is evil. It is wickedness. Our world will never be free from murder and assault and all other forms of barbarous actions that I can't even name until Jesus remakes it anew. Because you see, in the world, Satan is alive and he is at work. He is at work killing children, killing babies in the womb, destroying families, destroying marriages, destroying businesses, because he delights in it. Evil is real and it has real power. There is indeed a kingdom of darkness. But we, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, can have hope and confidence because as we look out and we see that evil, we can know that Jesus has conquered it. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities. He has publicly shamed them through the victory of the cross and He has triumphed over them by the power of the cross. So we need have no more fear. There is no fear that evil will win. The world is not like your favorite movie. You know, we watch the movies between good and evil, and we're pretty sure that the hero is going to win, but we're not quite so sure what the costs will be and if someone will survive and come back for a sequel. We're not quite sure that maybe around us, the church, that we're like a bunch of, I don't know, red-shirted officers on Star Trek. You know, the ones that go down with the actors and don't survive. But you see, life is not like a movie. Jesus has already won the battle. He has already won the victory. He has already declared that He is in charge. And so we can face the wickedness of the world against us with confidence, knowing that it does not depend upon us, our votes, our guns, our carriers, our bombers, our dollars, our businesses. It depends on Jesus. And He has already won the victory. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the conquering hero. If you have come to the place where by faith you have placed your trust in Jesus, then He has conquered death for you. He has conquered sin and is conquering sin daily in your life. And He has conquered all His and your enemies. Praise to God and the power of His grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have given us this picture of our Lord Jesus Christ.
who has conquered all our enemies, who gives us new life, who defeats the sin that so easily besets us. And Lord, we ask that you would make us grateful for the work that you have done in and through your Son. And that we would take the news of this conquering hero out into our community to tell others that there is hope, that death can be conquered, that sin can be conquered, that fear can be conquered. Lord, make us ambassadors for your gospel. This we ask in the name above all names, the name of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Good evening. Yes, I should do benediction. Please stand for the benediction. Thank you, Gladys. I got into praying a little bit too much there. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. Amen.